Ready to connect with the investment community here in Cleveland? Want to learn about the people, events, projects, and firms that are making a difference? Want all that but feel like you don't have the time? This is the show for you. Welcome to Guardians of Finance. Brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland and hosted by Matt McLaughlin, Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, Guardians of Finance will provide you with a chance to foster deeper connections and know what is getting the attention of Cleveland's investment community. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland and attend an educational or social event and find volunteer opportunities. And now, here's your host, Matt McLaughlin. Welcome to the Guardians of Finance podcast. I am your host, Matt McLaughlin. In this episode, we talk with Ezra Stark, CEO of Stark Enterprises. Stark and Ezra in particular have been and continue to be involved with many well-known real estate properties in Northeast Ohio and also have been expanding outside of Ohio. After growing up on the East Side, Ezra went to college and lived in Boston and New York before coming back to Cleveland. We talk with Ezra about his background, Stark's involvement in properties around Cleveland, and his passion for Cleveland sports. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode with Ezra Stark. Ezra, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Maybe just to jump right in, first thing, maybe introduce yourself a little bit and your company. You're the CEO for Stark Enterprises. Maybe some of the audience knows your company a little bit by name, but there's probably a couple of projects, I'm thinking commercial properties on the east side and west side of Cleveland that maybe you can just highlight and after introducing your company, talk a little about how you guys got into those projects, your kind of role in those projects, and tell us maybe something the average person doesn't know about those projects. So my name is Ezra Stark. I'm the CEO of Stark Enterprises. We're based out of Cleveland, Ohio, and we're a fully integrated real estate development company. I think we're in roughly, I think, eight states right now. Our portfolio is pretty diverse from student housing, multifamily, retail, parking, hospitality, and thankfully only a little bit of office. Being Northeast Ohio natives, a couple of our flagship properties definitely do reside in that region. And I believe the two that you're referring to, one would be in Westlake, Ohio, it's called Crocker Park, which is basically the downtown or the satellite hub from Cleveland downtown the west side of Cleveland. It's a 24-7 environment where people work, live, and play and shop and do everything else that they would do in their daily lives. On the east side of Cleveland, another interesting mixed-use property called Eden Chagrin Boulevard. That one consists of high-end office and retail and food offerings. I wouldn't go as far as to say Rodeo Drive of Northeast Ohio, but whatever equivalent that would be, in our marketplace with Tiffany's and Lululemon and some of those higher-end luxury tenants and aspirational shoppers. Those are, I think, the two properties that you were referring to. Some of the fun facts that maybe people don't maybe appreciate or understand at first glance is when you're creating an environment for multiple uses, we kind of take for granted when we walk the streets of a urban condition, whether that you're in Manhattan, Chicago, wherever. And that's really kind of happened organically over tremendous periods of time. 
could be 100 years old, depending on what city in America you're walking through. And those roads were designed initially for horses and wagons and built that way up. And they historically had the commercial retail districts and the residential. And so it kind of was more of an organic thing. And whereas when you build these things kind of from ground up, if you do it wrong and you don't take context under consideration, you know, you feel like you're walking through Disney World. And there's definitely projects that you would walk in this country that kind of missed that mark and kind of built a homogenous, sterile environment. Whereas when we were designing these projects, we wanted it to be imperfect versus perfection. So where a traditional outdoor retail environment would have park bench, tree, garbage can, rinse and repeat kind of things, or you'd see stuff symmetrical. So, if, well, this side of the street looks like this, the other side's going to tie in because it's usually it's one architect or one developer. But if you really want to create that authenticity, you need to create the asymmetry. So you're not doing a repetitive park bench, tree, trash. You're going to mix it up and activate these pedestrian-oriented developments. You're going to, maybe on one side, have a four-story building. On the other side, you're going to have a three-story building. You're going to have the streets be a little crooked on purpose. What we don't also realize, because it's all in our subconscious, when we enter into physical spaces, we're utilizing not all of our senses. We're, you know, obviously vision, we're seeing where we're going, but depending on what materials are on the ground, whether you're walking from the asphalt to pavers to whatever, the different materials that you feel, the touch that you feel on your feet are announcing different places on the outdoor side. Obviously, the sounds in terms of if you're activating and you're hearing, you have parks where kids are playing or you have dogs. It's just a full sensory experience that you really need to take into account prior to even starting because it's really hard to retrofit those experiences with it. That's fascinating. I mean, I'm sure many of us or many people listening have been to either one or both of those places and probably don't even think of those different elements that we're experiencing when we're there. And maybe using Crocker Park as an example, where did you guys either, maybe you guys were the driver of that project or maybe you got brought in later, but give us maybe the story of how you guys found or were brought into Crocker Park and just the development process of that. Because I think the average person shopping there probably doesn't have an appreciation for everything that goes into that scale of a project. The genesis was really, I think, in the late 80s, like I don't know, maybe 89 or something like that. My father actually had purchased the front parcel of land, which is the call right now the promenade at Crocker Park. Our company at that period of time was really just mostly focused on retail and traditional shopping centers. So we had developed a grocery acre shopping center. What was an anomaly at the time in that shopping center was that Gap, the clothing store, and was random. It's the first location they had outside of a classic interior mall. And Gap was performing really, really well. And so that was kind of an indicator and kind of lit, had a light bulb in terms of consumer demand and what was missing or people were looking for on the west side of Cleveland. Obviously, you had the antiquated models at Great Northern and at South Park Mall. And this was really... At the time, new urbanization was just in its infancy. And, and again, one of the things we pride ourselves at Stark Enterprises is the classic quote from Wayne Gretzky, don't go where the puck is, but go where it's going to go. When we sit down at our investor committee meetings, so our internal executives 
from the different departments and heads. We do a bunch of time just really brainstorming, saying, what are the trends we're looking at and where are things going? Because again, what's so interesting about real estate, you have to do that because especially if you're doing construction, if you're doing acquisitions and dispositions, you're a little bit more nimble and you can work within a year to two year basis. Again, because it's not a liquid property. It's not like you're day trading stocks. So real estate, you're still probably looking at three to six months, depending on a transaction, even if you're just buying an existing building. But when you're doing new construction, you're really looking at a three to five year horizon, depending on the size and what you're building for it to come online. You can't make decisions in a vacuum. You really have to not just look at the micro economics, but at the macro. It's a hard thing to do sometimes. This was early 90s. So in the early 90s, people were tired of the suburban sprawl where you had your classic shopping center with a sea of parking, you had your office park with a sea of parking, and then you had your little gated bedroom community. And people were craving the mixed-use urbanization, more pedestrian-friendly, more green environmental, just a very different energy. And so that was kind of the genesis for Crocker Park. And then we were able to acquire the land behind the promenade, and we worked on a couple ways to integrate that property within the greater context of Crocker Park. The most notable one was where we took the existing movie theater that had that old school ramped seating. We said, okay, we're going to renovate it, make it stadium seating, and then we're going to bridge it over to the second story within to the Crocker Park core, and have additional screens there with the current stadium seating. So again, so it was a pretty thought out process. And our thesis was that suburbs aren't going to replace the urban core, but if you can create the proper satellites that feed off of it, it only strengthens the region. And so what's interesting is I think we are the capital or the center of the west side of Cleveland. And I think actually the east side of Cleveland probably suffers from the fact that there is no definitive center. There's four or five retail developments on the east side. And so it's really fragmented. Being a resident on the east side, I think we suffer from the fact that there's not enough sufficient critical mass in any one project for there to be a definitive center and that thus it's fragmented. And I think things only perform okay there because of that. Whereas the consolidation, which has occurred nationally with retail, occurred at Crocker Park. I'm sure they'll figure out how to repurpose Great Northern. I know they work on some legislation there and other things, which will be great for the area. You know, you never want to see anybody get hurt or whatever. But again, depending on what asset class, but these projects are not just a buy and let it ride. These are really operating businesses, even more so they're venues. You're creating entertainment that is driving people to the properties because with the emergence of Amazon and the internet, that impulsivity when people... Again, you could get away with putting a mall off to the side. People had to go there to go shop. So it was a destination. Now you're competing with somebody opening up their phone and clicking and buying something. So the one thing that the internet can't replicate a bricks and mortar is impulsivity. And so a huge portion of what we do for when we go shopping is how are we as the consumer feeling at that time? What are we looking for? And if we're in a good mood, if we're sipping our coffee and our kids are playing in the park or whatever, or you're listening to a free concert, you're going to spend more money or you're going to feel in a good position to treat yourself and do more self-care. And those are what we're seeing as emerging as the winners in the retail space are the people, both in terms of the physical property, the people that can create the venues 
where people want to just spend their time there and just hang out. In addition to the retailers, where like the TJX companies, like so that's TJ Maxx, Home Goods, all this stuff. Why are they so successful in this day and age? I don't even think they have. You can buy online. It's because they're giving you that value proposition. They're saying you need to go to the property. You need to come to us and go treasure hunting. And you don't know what you're going to find. What great treasure you're going to find. So they've added that impulsivity and that experiential aspect that the internet hasn't been able to replicate. And so I think those are the ways you evolve alongside the emergence of internet shopping. I know I just got this feeling, but maybe some of the listeners would as well. Like I think you just described my Christmas experience with my family to a T when we went shopping, that impulsivity. So I can definitely identify with that. And there's a ton to unpack there, which I want to ask you a couple of questions about. But maybe first, I want to dive into just your background. Obviously, your company's headquartered here in Cleveland, and a lot of the business and properties are here. But tell us about your kind of upbringing, what your connection to Cleveland is, and maybe a short path on your career path and where that's taken you and allowed you to come back to Cleveland. Born and raised in Cleveland, avid Cleveland sports fan for better or worse, mostly worse. And I always feel guilty with my kids that I'm sorry for this legacy that I'm giving you with this, the Cleveland sports. It makes you stronger as a person. <laughs> Builds character. <laughs> you know, was always exposed around real estate at an early age. Super fond childhood memories as a little kid. My father throwing events, opening shopping centers. And I remember the Care Bears. I don't remember. That was an American Greetings, I think, did that. And they had people dressed up as Care Bears. I remember as a kid, I'd get to ride on construction vehicles during job sites. So always had a really wonderful, sentimental, and warm feeling towards the industry. And then I got exposed to some more practical business aspects versus the emotional. Starting at like age 16, my father would take us to a large retail conference a year by the retail lobbyist group ICSC. They throw a huge leasing conference in Las Vegas every year in May. And so being able to be in a conference room with CEOs of various leading retail brands in America and just being a fly on the wall. I wasn't allowed to say anything, but just being the shadow and just observing both how relationships are created and built in addition to negotiating and also just to really humanize people in these positions of power. Because, you know, as a 16-year-old kid, you say, oh, this is the CEO of Walmart or Barnes and Noble or whatever companies they could be, that's pretty intimidating. And if you can establish at an early age that everybody's human, we all have our flaws and we all need to be real and genuine and they put their shoes and pants on the same way we all do. It's very empowering. It knocks a lot of those mental roadblocks you might set up saying, well, who am I? What am I? How am I ever going to do great things? It trains you to not settle. It trains you to be aspirational and reach for the stars. So I think that those were really impactful experiences for me in the profession. Where did you go to university, college at? I think you may have went somewhere else and came back to Cleveland. Undergrad, I went to Brandeis University in, in Massachusetts. And then I went to grad school at NYU for real estate and finance. And then... While I was in New York, I got to work with Four City, Ratner at the time, prior to Four City buying it. And now, again, everything changes. Now it's that's Brookfield, no more Four City, which is wild, growing up in Cleveland. 
it's interesting. I feel like it's like Survivor. They're all the great, the DDRs of the world. They're all disappearing, the associated states, these massive giants of our industry. It's interesting how Ohio, both Columbus and Cleveland had just, you know, with Glimsher and Shansings and Wexner, the development, Jacobs and all these guys on the retail side, Northeast Ohio and Central Ohio were really major factors in the United States retail and residential landscape, which is pretty remarkable from our region. I was able to work for Four City Ranner, got to work on when they bought the, at the time it was the New Jersey Nets, now they moved into Brooklyn. So I got to see the goings and comings regarding their new stadium in Brooklyn and how that was done, learn what to do and what not to do. And again, that was super litigious and had a lot of public-private things that they had to figure out there. Got to work on a really interesting outdoor lifestyle mall in Yonkers called Atlantic Yards. Again, had a lot of valuable lessons, both good and bad. It was interesting. That was kind of like at the height of retail real estate, and it was just high-flying. And it was great for me to get a different culture and different taste in, in what was New York. Then when the financial crisis really hit, was that like 18, 19, I decided to come home and help out with the family business and also take advantage of being able to work alongside my father was something that I thought that was a unique opportunity I want to miss out on. I was able to cherish and enjoy that. Besides the obviously professional, somewhat family pull back to Cleveland, you lived in Brandeis is in Boston, I believe, and tell me if I'm wrong in that. Then you lived in New York after college, worked there, MBA. What else drew you back to Cleveland other than obviously the family and professional, which are big things, but what else did you maybe miss about Cleveland or maybe New York or Boston didn't have that endears you to Cleveland? Well, obviously the familiarity of Cleveland is always going to be near and dear to me. The cost of living and the ability to raise a family here. In terms of cost of living, you're still getting so much more bang for your buck than you are in New York or Boston. Culturally speaking, I like Midwestern values. When you're walking in Manhattan, it's very rare for a stranger to look at you in the eye and smile and say, hey, good morning, whatever. That comes second nature to people in Cleveland. People are walking their dog, people are jogging, people are just saying hi. People are just friendly. When you're in a car and you're driving, people let you into the lane. So it's just a much less aggressive doggy dog world kind of mentality where probably when you are one of millions, and I understand in a high density area like Manhattan, you're kind of more in survival mode and you're maybe even a little bit more tribal in your community and stuff like that. Whereas there's something a lot more wholesome and warm. Ironically, as I say that, it's like there's snow hail coming out of my window right now. <laughs> but the warmth of the people, of the residents of Cleveland and Northeast Ohio, you can just feel it culturally. The Midwest is very different than the Northeast. On the flip side, what's something that you miss a little bit about New York City and the big city that maybe Cleveland doesn't have or New York City maybe does a little bit better? The truth is, as I got older, it's less attractive. I'm not staying out until two or four in the morning. The nightlife was kind of different there. The truth is, though, but on the cultural arts side, Northeast Ohio really actually, both on, like the healthcare with the hospitals, the playhouse, the theater district, museums, all that stuff is pretty first class and accessible in our area. We don't really want from that. If there were any geographical areas I'd be looking at, it'd be more south with better weather. Weather, 
is always a challenge in our region. And I think also just in terms of demographics. Now, I think Columbus is bucking that trend where Columbus, I think Columbus with Intel will emerge as a top five city in the country. I think we're just scratching the surface on Columbus. I'm super bullish on Columbus. And I think there's lots of factors. I think the state government's based there. The politicians in Columbus are going to take care of Columbus before they take care of Cincinnati and Cleveland, unfortunately. We've seen that time and time again, not to get political, but that's just where we see the dollars going. Northeastern Ohio, we have these little blimps and then it dies out. And so the problem, I think, in Northeast Ohio is governmentally, we're structured kind of like fiefdoms. There's too many, whether it's the county system or it's even the cities with too many city council positions, whatever it is, there's a lot of red tape. And so it's really hard to operate within these areas. In addition to the shrinking demographics, you have a shrinking population and that hurts. There is a pull for me, not just on the weather side, which is again, why majority of our new development is outside of Ohio. 99% of it is in states where people are moving to. We're right now, post-COVID, America is experiencing the largest mass migration since the end of the Industrial Revolution. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, Cleveland was awesome. Cleveland, Pittsburgh, all those museums I just talked to you about were built by the Rockefeller and his guys during that period of time, which unfortunately was when Cleveland was at its height. Post-Industrial Revolution, everybody left the Rust Belt states and went to the coast. And then New York and California, everybody was thriving like crazy. Now we're seeing a shift from the coast from California and New York to the Southeast, so the Sun Belt, so the Florida, the Carolinas, and then we're also seeing in the Rocky Mountain regions, Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Boise, Idaho, you're seeing massive shifts in migrations in this country that's going to be for decades now. And this is not a temporary, people are like, oh, they're fleeing because of COVID. No, we're past that tipping point. Florida isn't slowing down. The Carolinas aren't slowing down. Arizona's not slowing down. So for me, if you put in a dollar in Northeast Ohio and you're only going to make a dollar ten, but if I put a dollar in Florida and I'm making a dollar thirty, that's all about opportunity cost. I'm seeing that as a pool that again, as a native Clevelander, I don't love seeing. And as a native Clevelander, I trying to work behind the scenes with various political officials to try to give advice on how to encourage growth. And the biggest thing is jobs. The way Cleveland and Cuyahoga County, they desperately need to figure out how can they become competitive to bring in a massive national employer. And it's hard because forget about the desirable areas that people want to do where they could be on the beach or skiing on a mountain during their lunch break. So you've got those challenges, but just economically, there's only so much the counties or cities can do financially to incentivize these companies you're going to compete with Pittsburgh, you're going to compete with other Detroit, you're going to compete with cities similar to what you have in terms of resources. So it's a heavy lift for them. You have a nice blog on your website, and I see that you've been pretty active in writing about AI's potential impact to real estate. Could you share some of, kind of your, your thoughts there on this is such a hot topic right now of how real estate investors, or maybe just even the average investor who wants to get into real estate, you're seeing trends in how AI is utilized and maybe how real estate investing will change because of it. On the asset management side, we do a lot of venture capital stuff too. So I invested in this prop tech company called Meet Elise. And basically it's a AI chatbot 
where people own apartment buildings instead of having, let's say, three leasing associates for a residential project, you could have two people plus this product. And basically, if you're chatting online with this person, you wouldn't know that it wasn't a human. I mean, you can get as detailed as you could imagine about the size of your dog or whatever, and they're not just responding to you about how much that costs, but, oh, what color is it? What kind of breed? It's personable. The emails we would get or have seen from other people that use it are saying, give this person a raise. They've been the most attentive, unbelievable. <laughs> it's amazing. And again, if you think about it, now you have somebody, somebody, and I put that in quotation marks, who's working 24-7. And so I think we're definitely going to see that continue to grow in terms of the customer service and leasing on the residential side. It's pretty remarkable there. In terms of the other stuff for AI, I think in real estate, I think just the analytics. I think in terms of really, if you have certain metrics, you're doing some sort of programmatic development stuff. Our firm right now is really solely focused on new construction is in the build for rent space. And so we have, let's say, 20 different things we're looking at. And so AI can really process that throughout the US in a way faster way and say, well, this is where you need to be for this, what you're trying to do and rank the markets, if you will. In addition to that, AI can also say, oh, by the way, we see that this purse, this type of purse is bought in these same areas at these sales. So maybe another thing you want to track is how many Louis Vuitton, Gucci, whatever purse is bought. And if you look at where those are, those could be another hidden gem or something you may want to unearth because that could be a potential good location for you. So kind of being able to process metrics a lot faster in addition to potentially adding metrics you wouldn't have thought would be directly correlated to something that's completely on paper not related, but actually could give you really good insight. So I think that those are some of the things that are really interesting on that. You mentioned earlier that you guys sound like you don't have a ton of exposure to the commercial real estate market, which has been in a little bit of turmoil. But what has it been over time that has caused you guys maybe to not go into that space as much? And what are you seeing there right now? And when you say commercial, I'm assuming you're saying office. Yes. I think that that's the benefit. And again, it's not like we've been right all the time, but in terms of us sitting down in our committee, discussing trends, we noticed that office tenants were just like in the retail side, but in retail, you're renewing five, 10 years. What we were seeing from the office, we were seeing trends where office users were shortening their terms. So they only want to make a two or three year commitment. And that's really hard to amortize. And they all want money. They all want the landlord to do build outs for the office. So it's really hard to get your payback off the initial terms. It's really hard to underwrite. Office became really capital intensive with the amount of money as construction costs soared to do that. And then obviously, post-COVID, COVID was kind of a game changer for office in the sense that we didn't even have a work from home policy prior to COVID. And now we have a two-day flex permanent for us. So COVID kind of accelerated the demise of traditional office space in the sense that everybody getting used with the technology with Zoom or Teams or what have you, they made the necessity to have enough office space. It changes the ratio, it changes the math, how much square footage of office you need per employee. So either you're going to do hoteling spacing, which means 
that you have a desk, everybody might have a little file cabinet that's locked for their personal stuff that's on wheels and you wheel that up to any workstation, if you will. So that could reduce you by 20, 30% of space. So you were seeing a lot of negative trends. You were seeing increasing construction costs and the demands from tenants in terms of what they wanted in terms of build out. You saw tenants wanting more flexibility in shorter term, which then gives them all the leverage to renegotiate at the end of the term. And then you saw the less space phenomenon, which is really hard because it's not like it's all fungible. You have to do space planning. So if a big tenant in one of your buildings says, hey, I'm giving you back 25% of the space on floors 10 through 8, then on floors 5 or 6, we're giving you back 10%. All of a sudden, now you're dealing with a building that starts looking like Swiss cheese. So even if they're giving you back that space, how can you necessarily make that viable office space, at least to somebody else, and recapture that revenue? You're also in danger of not just losing that existing tenant, but really making that other space usable. So there's just... Tremendous amount of complications right now facing the office sector when we're seeing things trading right now at 25 cents on the dollar. And this is probably going to be a seven-year cycle, maybe five years, depending on geopolitical stuff. But again, just like when we Amazon emerge and everyone's like, oh, retail's dead, bricks and mortar are dead. No, no, no. No, what happened was people stopped building new retail. So all of a sudden, the supply stopped. So now all of a sudden you gave the benefit of the demand to catch up to supply. In addition, you consolidate, you probably took 30% out of the supply, which again, reduces supply further to help the supply meet the demand. We're still oversupplied versus demand, but as a country in general, it's getting a lot better. So what you're seeing now in the retail sector, which was getting crushed, let's say pre-COVID, you're seeing now rents are stable, occupancies up, because nobody's been building new stuff and the more inferior product's been repurposed. And maybe people lost the money initially, the original people with the shopping centers, they had to take a cut on the value, but people bought the shopping centers at a certain cap rate now that seems to have stabilized in terms of where the values are. So we're now at the beginning stage now in office where there's a ton of price discovery. Nobody knows where this is going to shake out. Look, if you had a huge risk tolerance and you were really gutsy, I'm using my PG expression for <laughs> There's a play to be made. You can make a big bet on office. And if you guess right, you can make a ton of money. But you guess wrong, you're going to lose everything. So it's, it's a high risk, high reward game we're looking at there. But again, we're going to see a tremendous amount of office be repurposed, whether it's going to be, we've seen some residential conversions, seen some hospitality conversions. The challenge is office floor plans are not really conducive to be repurposed. It really sounds great on paper. There were people that raised hundreds of millions of dollars in order to repurpose office into residential. And I've only seen very few be really successful. at. So it'll be interesting to see what other uses we haven't even thought of. Could that be vertical data centers? Could you like have a bunch of repurposed office building and put servers, put a cloud for Google or Amazon? There's going to be something else that's going to have to eat up some of this office supply. But we're probably seven years out, I think at least, to see where the office market's going to shape. It's going to be pretty tumultuous. It'll be interesting though. Maybe shifting gears a little bit. Personally, outside of work, what are some of your personal passions and interests? You mentioned the Cleveland sports fan, which we can dive into that a little bit in a little later. But other than Cleveland sports in your personal life, what passions do you have that you're willing to share with the audience? 
I think the first and foremost passion is just being a father and being present for my kids. I think that that's probably one of the most rewarding things, at least for me, it's probably the most rewarding thing for me in my life. Outside of the family stuff, I super passionate about mental health. I focus really on my philanthropic stuff on mental health and rare diseases. And so I enjoy working on a lot of philanthropical things on that side that also really, again, gives me a great sense of fulfillment and purpose. And I really love and passionate about it. And then for fun, for self-care, because that's also really important. You always want to put the oxygen mask on yourself before you help others. I really enjoy skiing. I enjoy meditation, yoga, swimming. This is the part of the podcast where we can dive into sports a little bit, but as one of the segments, but kind of what we call the lightning round or rapid fire questions. So if you're willing, we can go into those if that's all right. It's great. I just wish I had a buzzer. I feel like I want to be game. <laughs> all right. Do you have a nickname? <laughs> Multiple ones. What's your favorite? Easy. We'll go with that one. Easy. I like it. You mentioned I usually ask hobby, but it sounds like skiing might be a good hobby. And depending on how many kids you have, might take up the time for those hobbies. <laughs> I'm blessed with five kids. Oh, that's awesome. Got my hands full. I'm surprised you have time for any hobbies. <laughs> if you're a cook, what's your favorite recipe to cook? If you're not a cook, what's your favorite recipe to eat? My signature dish cooking would be asobuco. I really love anything Asian. I mean, I love sushi. The complexity within the simplicity, I love. Not all sushi is created equal. So if I have a really like with a chef that really knows what they're doing, that's a special. Best book about real estate that you've ever read? Big short. What profession would you be in if you weren't doing what you're doing now? Psychologist. Nice. I can definitely sense the interest in the experiences with people and kind of how you describe that. That makes a lot of sense now. What's your bucket list travel destination that you have not been to, but you want to get to? I think Asia, like Japan, would be pretty cool. Any hidden talents? Play the saxophone. Very nice. Your favorite lunch spot in Cleveland? I better pick one of my tenants, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't make anyone mad on the podcast. Well, right next to my office, we have a really cool building called The Beacon. And there's a phenomenal lunch spot there called Balance Grill. That's a good one. I have not heard of that one, so I like it. Come to Cleveland, I'll buy you lunch. I live on the east side. Awesome. Come downtown. Sounds good. I will do that. Usually the question is, what's your favorite hidden gem? But I'm going to change it because of your answer earlier about sushi and Asian food. What's your favorite sushi spot in Cleveland? Really love Blue Sushi at Cracker Park. That's a top one. If you want two more. And again, I'm biased because that's a cracker, but I love Actually, have Blue Sushi is actually phenomenal. And then I really like the Marlboro Sushi. I think it does a really good job. And obviously Dante's Ginkgo is pretty solid too. What's your favorite Metro Park? Probably Squire, the one with Squire's Castle. That's a good one. Favorite social media follow if you're active on social media, at least from a listening and reading perspective, you don't have to be active posting. I like Tony Robbins. One of the business one, I would say Jay Parsons, who's a really good residential economist that I like. Jay Parsons. That's a good one. I haven't heard of that one. I have to add that one. If you're into multifamily statistics, it's pretty brilliant. Interesting. All right. The sports part of the lightning round. Where did you watch the Cavs win the NBA title? At my house. And then did you go to the parade a couple of days later? Yes. 
where did you watch the Guardians lose the World Series to the Cubs or the Indians, I should say, at the time? In the dugout. Was that pretty disappointing? It was disappointing because I felt like I was in Chicago. <laughs> because all the Cleveland people sold their tickets. We were definitely the minority in the stadium at the game seven. But I got to tell you something. That home run in the ninth, when we tied it up off of Chapman, was more exciting than when Kyrie had that shot on LeBron to block the championship. Because I thought we were due against the Warriors. That comeback I thought was so unlikely. And that was right after we won the championship. So I'm like, oh my God, we just broke the seal. Now we're going to have two championships in 2016. I lost my voice screaming just right after that home run. <laughs> but then the rain delay and heartbreak. That's awesome about the home run. Were you watching when Jordan hit the shot over Elo? And if so, where were you watching? What year was that? 89? I don't think it was early 90s. 90... It was 92, 93 maybe even? I was thinking 92. Might have been 92. You're right. I don't think my parents let me watch that game. I've seen lots of highlights. And I've watched the game sit prior. I don't remember watching the shot live. What was your reaction when LeBron left Cleveland the first time? I was pretty upset. I thought whoever was advising him, that whole decision thing was a train wreck. Yeah, it was definitely, I think, a sense of betrayal. You know, he's a local guy. You wanted to see some of that local pride at the time. We're recording this on the 10th of January. So this is a brand new podcast, Rapid Fire Question. How far are the Browns going to go in the playoffs this year? They're playing this weekend on Saturday. How far do you think they can go? Look, I've got Flacco fever. I think with this defense, the sky's the limit. If we keep it two turnovers or less, I think the sky's the limit. I think our biggest vulnerability is the turnovers, and hopefully we have our field goal kicker Hopkins back. I think that those are the two real question marks. I think we have the defense. They've shown it that they can contain Lamar Jackson in Baltimore, So, which I think is the only threat. I see whoever wins the AFC to win it. I don't take San Francisco seriously enough. I think we could be in the Super Bowl, which I never thought in my lifetime that that could be, just because since Bernie Kosar, maybe Derek Anderson, that one fluke year, we never had a vertical passing game, even with Watson. Even when Watson was great during Baltimore, it was mostly short passes. He had the one bomb. When you have a guy who can throw it vertical, it opens up the short game. You always saw Brady, all those guys were always doing the screen passes. That's how they won the championships. You got to keep him honest with that. It's been pretty incredible. I don't remember seeing Flacco ever play this well. So it's a pretty cool narrative. Maybe one final question, given your response there. And this is one a friend brought up to me. Should the Browns bring back Flacco next year and part ways with Deshaun? So I think it really is going to depend on how the next few games play out. I think if you win the Super Bowl, you're going to have to have a conversation because Watson's not going anywhere and he's fully guaranteed. Short of a Super Bowl, I think even Flacco made the statement this year he wasn't going to sign on to be a bench player. He wanted all to be a starter. So short of the Super Bowl, I don't know how you can, unless Flacco takes a huge pay cut and you could afford him. And even then, I don't know with the investment you're doing. I, you know, I know what Denver did with Wilson. Watson's been slowly progressing. You see him. It doesn't seem like Watson has hit a wall yet where he's hit his ceiling. Has his progression and rust taken longer than I think Browns fans would like? Yeah. But based on the dollars, and again, because we're winning because of our defense, let's be real here. That's true. Our defense is the Super Bowl quality defense. Because again, even with the excitement of the offense, the turnovers should sink us. And it's really, 
I think the biggest loss in the offseason will be if they hire Jim Schwartz as a head coach because I think I've got mixed feelings on Stefanski, but I think Schwartz, the defense has been the huge game changer for the team. Totally. Well, Ezra, you are off the hot seat. I think if the Browns keep progressing in the playoffs, we could turn this podcast into a Browns podcast because that can be fun to talk about. And be happy to. If we do that, we'll have you back on. I'm going on a family trip. I wanted to go to Houston with my kids, but in the next round it could be fun. Especially think if Pittsburgh, Miami, and Cleveland all win, then Cleveland would actually get to host the second round game, which would be cool. That would be awesome. I bet you'll be at that game. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> well, great. Well, Ezra, thanks for joining the podcast. We appreciate the conversation. It was fun. Same, Matt. Thanks. It was great. You've been listening to Guardians of Finance, brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head on over to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland, attend an educational or social event, and find volunteer opportunities. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Guardians of Finance.